Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Roman Krisnarek to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Roman is an Australian public philosopher who writes about the power of ideas to change society. His books, including Empathy, The Wonder Box, and Carpe Deum Regained, have been published in more than 20 languages. His latest book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, is out now. So thank you very much, Roman, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Wow, it's a huge pleasure to be here. So wonderful. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about uh, your work, and in particular, your fresh off the press, The Good Ancestor, and uh, really important research and thinking about long-term thinking and some of the wicked problems we face right now in the world. So maybe just before we, we start to talk a little bit about the current situation and your book, can you maybe just talk a little bit about your own background, Roman, and what, what kind of things you do? Yeah, so I'm a public philosopher, at least that's how I describe myself, self-describe myself on my website, so I'm interested in writing and thinking about, you know, the big ideas that change society. So not just a philosopher in the sense of how do we rethink our personal lives, but how do we rethink social life, economic life, political life. And, you know, my actual background was as a political scientist thinking about democratization, particularly in Latin America. But over the years, I've shifted much more towards um, this sort of space of trying to think about ideas which change paradigms. Um, and that's what I do. I founded an empathy museum. I've written four or five books about empathy and other topics. And my new book really is taking me in a new direction, almost back to being a political scientist, because the book you know, called The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, raises a lot of thorny political questions, not only, but about how do we cure ourselves of the myopia, the political presentism, which is such a fundamental barrier to shifting towards a more sustainable society. Absolutely. Um, before we go on, uh, what, what's the Empathy Museum? Yeah, it sounds crazy. What the hell is an Empathy Museum? Well, it's a museum that um, I founded about four or five years ago. It travels around the world. It's run by a brilliant artist called Claire Patey. And what it does is it gives people the experience of what it's like to be another person. So one of the exhibits is called A Mile in My Shoes, and it's a gigantic shoebox, which has been in the UK. It's been in Russia and Australia and the US and other places. And you walk inside this gigantic shoebox. It says A Mile in My Shoes outside, it, and it's the world's first empathy shoe shop. 
So in there, someone will fit you with a pair of shoes belonging to a stranger. It could be someone who's been in prison for 14 years or a Syrian refugee or a Brazilian sex worker. And you can literally put on their shoes, walk in their actual shoes and listen to an audio narrative of them talking about their own life in their own words. So it's very personal. It's very intimate. We've collected hundreds of pairs of shoes from around the world. Very, very interesting. And this question of empathy is really important. And I think, uh, uh, yeah, I could talk about that, the, the empathy for our neighbors, our friends, and indeed, future generations. And just before we start, we were clearly in a pretty crisis uh, ridden uh, moment, um, not just the, the, the coronavirus, but more generally, there are significant environmental, social, economic challenges. Wondering what in particular is on your mind? Well, because I'm interested in long-term thinking, I'm doing my best to try and see beyond the immediacy, for example, of the, the pandemic that we're in. But of course, the pandemic itself raises big questions about long-term thinking, which interests me. Like, How do we future-proof our, our public health systems? How do we think long-term about those issues so we plan for the next pandemic on the horizon? But I'm also thinking of the other great long-term challenges of our century. So obviously, how do we deal with the uh, climate crisis and ecological degradation more broadly and overcome our short-term addiction to fossil fuels? How do we deal with the technological threats on the horizon from AI-controlled lethal autonomous weapons to the next genetically engineered pandemic that might be coming our way? And then there are really deep social long-term issues as well. For example. Black Lives Matter has really raised an issue of intergenerational justice of we are the inheritors of colonial and slavery era racism written into our criminal justice systems and social life. And if we don't do something about it, those injustices just get passed on from this generation to the next and so on. So these are a whole set of what I feel is really urgent long-term issues. And there's the paradox there. We need to deal with these things in the here and we need to deal with them in the now. And yet these are issues which require thinking, in many cases, decades and even centuries ahead. Very interesting. You, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, and certainly it seems like a moment of a great change. People think it's a moment of particular possibility. Tectonic plates are shifting. People's values are shifting. It seems, uh, I know in the UK, for example, uh, with respect to, to uh, lifestyle and work, and people have said they don't want to go back to what was you know, the status quo before and, and raising questions, uh, ideas that have been in the air, like universal basic income are, are, are becoming more credible and Spain is moving forward. At the same time, in the background, or maybe not even the background, you know, the, the Trump administration is removing environmental uh, laws, and, and uh, around the world, governments are taking control and data and all kinds of things. It's we're right in the middle of this at the moment. Do you get a, a sense of, of, of a, a direction of change, or are you optimistic? Are there, there are things there that, that, that make you feel confident? Ah, big question. Well, I think that one has to think carefully about what happens at a moment of crisis like this. You know, the economist Milton Friedman, who I rarely quote, I have to admit, did say once that only a crisis, actual or perceived, creates real change. And I think that's a pretty good historical rule of thumb. We know, for example, that out of the crisis of the World War II came, World War II came pioneering long-term institutions like 
the World Health Organization or the European Union or the National Health Service in Britain. But the thing about crises is they can take you in multiple directions. There's a bit of a devil's fork problem. So go back to the Great Depression. Well, in the 1930s, some countries that kickstarted them towards social democracy. Other countries, it shifted them towards fascism, like in Germany. So this is kind of where we are now. And as your question really demonstrates, you know, you've got at this moment, big companies wanting to say to governments, right, we need to deregulate uh, environmental you know, protections and so on, because we need to restart our economies. Yet on the other hand, you've got this opening, transformative opening, as you mentioned, their universal basic income or you know, places like uh, Amsterdam having adopted Kate Rayworth's donut economics model. You know, th there's a space for things like regenerative economics and circular economy, uh, post-growth, degrowth. So the question of whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic, well, that's really all about the choices that we make. There's enormous inertia in our institutions. And I sometimes when I think about this issue, I think about some research done about people who've had near-death experiences. So people who've almost died in car crashes or, or, re or recovered from cancer at the last moment. And what you find is they have, there's a range of responses. So some people, it kickstarts them into really grasping life and seizing the day and giving up jobs that they hate when they've had this near-death experience. For other people, um, it leads to a trauma response and anxiety, and it, it's a really difficult thing uh, for them to deal with. And then for the final third of people, this equal third responses, the final third of people have almost no reaction at all. They go on with business as usual. And I think in this uh, crisis that we're facing now with a pandemic, we, I think different cities and countries and communities are going to follow these different pathways. We're going to see a palimpsest, a real mix of responses. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And, and I think um, certainly uh, from my perspective, it, people are pretty preoccupied with more immediate issues than uh, what they what seems to be something further away, the sustainability questions, the climate change and so forth. Uh, there was a great cartoon I saw, which was a tsunami coming and the tsunami was the, the kind of COVID and behind that was a, another tsunami of, of uh, which you couldn't see, but of, you know, of, I could just about see, but of, you know, of government austerity or financial issues coming from that. And then behind this one was a huge tsunami, which you couldn't see, which was, which, you know, global warming and, and, and climate collapse. Yeah, we're, we're, we are in, in some respects, it's, it's unfolding and we're kind of creating that uh, world uh, as, as, as time uh, goes on right now. Um, now, a good ancestor, uh, what does that mean, Robert? Well, it's not my phrase for a start, even though it's a title for my book. Um, I stole it from the immunologist Jonas Salk, who, with his team, developed the first polio vaccine back in 1955. But in the 1970s, he said, well, the big question facing our civilization is this. Are we being good ancestors? And I think that question of how we go about being a good ancestor is the central one for our time. I mean, Salk believed that we we're only going to be able to deal with the great problems we are facing uh, in the coming centuries, such as the destruction of the natural world or the nuclear threat, which was big in his time particularly, if we could only deal with that if we expanded our time horizon. So in instead of thinking on a scale of seconds, minutes, and hours, we need to think on a scale of decades, centuries, and even millennia. Now, that's easier said than done. And, you know, you can pick up a book by Al Gore saying, oh, we need more long-term thinking, or Jared Diamond in his book Collapse says, we need more long-term thinking. Well, 
what is long-term thinking? What is it to be a good ancestor? And that's what I've tried to unpick by exploring six different ways we can um, become long-term thinkers and be remembered well. But the, one of the tricks here, though, is to realize that long-term thinking in and of itself isn't necessarily a good thing. You know, Hitler wanted an 1,000-year Reich, or the former investment uh, head of the investment bank, Goldman Sachs, Gus Levy, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. So being a good ancestor is to both have a long-term vision, but to make sure it is directed to helping a broad constituency of people and planet to think about what I call the future holders, the universal strangers of the future. At the heart of this is a question I'm concerned with. How do you weigh up and consider side by side the rights and needs of future generations with the rights and needs of people alive today? Uh, right now, even before COVID, we've seen huge and growing inequality. Tens of millions suffer from malnutrition. Infant mortality remains high in some parts of the world. How do you prioritize where to focus attention? I get where you're coming from. In a way, there is a potential tension between the rights and interests of current generations and future generations. Of course, we know there are 150 million children right here today who face the threat of malnutrition-induced mortality right, across low-income countries and even in some high-income countries, medium-income countries. And shouldn't we be focusing on all those problems today, the problems of long-term unemployment, problems of people lining up in food banks, uh, places where there's civil war, you know, Groucho Marx allegedly said, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? At the same time, we recognize, I think, when we stop to think about it, that or at least the way I sort of phrase it is that we have colonized the future. We see the future, particularly in wealthy countries, as a distant colonial outpost devoid of people where we can freely dump ecological degradation and technological risk, nuclear waste, as if there was nobody there and there's a real question well what right do we have to impose those things on future generations who we know are, are coming you know some of those future generations are alive today our children or grandchildren but we know that tens of billions of people are going to be born over the next century and going to suffer the consequences of our actions of our climate addiction of our deadly technologies you know like artificial intelligence for example so we we need to keep them in our mind but then how do you do you weigh up or try and balance their interests. So on one hand, well, let me, let me give you a couple of very real, everyday, practical examples that try to tackle this. Go to Wales. In Wales, there is a future generations commissioner, as you probably know, a public position that current commissioner is called Sophie Howe. Now, her approach to this problem is to kind of go for the place where the interests of current and future generations overlap. So she's focused a lot of her work on things like um, renewable energy, transport, air pollution, these kind of issues where the benefits accrue both to people today and in the future. Um, so that's sort of one approach. A second approach, a really fascinating one, it relates to a Japanese model of kind of citizen assembly, local decision-making called future design. And this is brilliant. In fact, just this morning, I've been in touch with the, the person who runs at Yoshi Saijo in Japan, a, a professor, and the way future design works is that they invite local people to a meeting for their town or city. And this has been done in Kyoto and Tokyo and other big places. They invite them for meetings. And the first group 
They're split into two groups. The first group are told they're citizens from the present. And the second group are told to imagine themselves as being citizens from the year 2060. And they're even given these almost ceremonial kimonos to wear to aid their imaginative journey. It turns out that the citizens from 2060 systematically come up with much more radical plans than the current citizens when it comes to environmental policy and health, education, transport policy. But even uh, when it comes to the finances, there's, they've got lots of evidence to show, for example, that even when, for example, the residents from the present don't want to increase water rates or in order to do long-term investment in the town's water infrastructure, the citizens from 2060 are willing to pay more for it. In other words, they're willing to sacrifice because they know their children and their grandchildren are going to be there in the future. So I think there's a, a complex relationship, obviously, between the present and the future. I think everyday citizens recognize that we have obligations to those future people, those future holders. Governments find it more difficult. You know, they like discounting the future using that economic methodology where future people are given less weight to their interests than current generations. But that idea of discounting needs to be absolutely challenged. In fact, I was in a meeting with British members of parliament last week um, talking about how to reform the UK Treasury's discounting methodology. So I think there is hope for a change in that area too. So can you talk maybe a little bit about discounting? What do you mean by discounting and uh, what, why is it so important? So discounting is a form of intergenerational oppression dressed up to look like a rational economic methodology. And it, it is a form of very standard cost-benefit analysis that's used particularly by governments when making long-term infrastructure investment decisions. So will they invest in, um, you know, whether it's public hospitals or a long-term renewable energy project or something like that, like a tidal lagoon. And what they do is in the same way that the further and further someone is away from you, the smaller and smaller they look. Well, with discounting, the further and further people are in the future, the less weight is given to any benefits that might accrue to them. So if you've got a, a renewable energy project that might bring benefits 50 years from now, or even 70, 80, 100 years from now, when governments are calculating those benefits, they basically don't include them at all. Um, they're weighting the benefits to the present. And that means projects with long-term um, welfare uh, impacts um, uh, don't, get, don't get through. I mean, they are just sort of pushed to the side. Um, the, the welfare benefits are basically become negligible the further you go into the future. So this is a really fundamental problem. And one way of thinking about it is that if you've got 100 people today at a discount rate of 3%, which is roughly what the British government and many governments use, at a discount rate of 3%, the interest of 100 people today is the equivalent in, in 50 years' time, um, 100 people's interests are actually valued at about 23 people's interests. So less than a quarter of the value of people today. So you can see how that welfare diminishes through time. So I absolutely believe that, particularly in areas of ecological risk, discounting probably shouldn't even be used at all because economists say, well, we can discount the future welfare uh, of people in the future because they'll have more money in their pockets due to economic growth and technologies to help them. But no amount of money in your pocket is going to help you reverse the melting of the Greenland ice sheet or reverse biodiversity loss. So I think discount rates shouldn't be applied in some areas or they should be minute diminished at very, very low levels. It's one of these tech 
technical issues, but which is actually really fundamental for policy decision making. Uh, very interesting. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said there. It's a, quite an intricate area. At the same time, presumably, the further you go into the future with your planning, the more, uh, I guess, degrees of freedom, the more possibilities, the more the impact of the assumptions that go into your model. So if you're looking at something five years away or 20 years away or 70 years away, you get a, as you go into the distant future, you get a much wider range of possibilities. Um, and therefore, it must put some pressure or some focus on the kind of assumptions that go into the models. And we see this uh, in a big way in terms of the climate models and, and, and the scientific debate. Um, well, so far as the debate, but the scientific focus is about the modeling and the assumptions that go into the modeling and things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, certainly people who are in the areas of what are called future studies futurists and forecasters often talk about what's called the, the cone of possibility or the cone of uncertainty. And that's exactly that idea in a way that the further you go into the future, the less you know about what's going to happen. So how the hell can you plan for anything? How can you make effective climate models or any kind of other models? And on the one hand, that's true. As one famous futurist said, knowledge of the future is a contradiction in terms. You know, we don't know what's out there. Uh, we don't know how AI is going to develop, for example. We don't know if there's going to be a genetically engineered pandemic or when it might hit. And yet, I believe we know an enormous about, amount about the future, or at least what kind of future we need. I mean, I very much come from the direction of ecological economics, actually, uh, which is something I've had to learn myself. I studied economics 30 years ago, but the idea of ecological <laughs> economics never crossed my path. But the basic idea, of course, is that going back to the work of people like Herman Daly, is that we need to create economies where we're not using resources faster than we can naturally regenerate them. So we're not chopping down trees faster than they, they grow back. And we're not creating more waste that can be naturally absorbed, for example, by carbon sinks like the uh, atmosphere and oceans. We need to be thriving in balance rather than growing, growing and growing, Continue that, continuing up that obsessive growth curve, up the curve of the great acceleration. Now, what we realize, though, if we're going to live within planetary boundaries and live in this one planet, we really need to learn from the living world. And I'm very influenced by the work of the great biomimicry thinker, Janine Benyez. And she says, well, if you're thinking about long-termism and how we're going to survive long-term as a species, look to the lessons of 3.8 billion years of nature. And what you find is whether you're looking at birds or beavers or bears, the same thing. You find that species survive for the long-term when they take care of the place that takes care of their offspring. In other words, they learn to live within the biocapacity of the ecosystem in which they're embedded. They don't foul the nest. As Benyaz puts it, life has learned to create conditions conducive to life. And of course, human beings are hopeless at staying within those boundaries. We are experts at fouling the nest. That's why we use on average 1.6 uh, Earths each year in terms of our you know, global footprint. Um, so what we know then coming back to the question in a slightly roundabout way, is that although the future is incredibly uncertain, what we do know is that if we are going to survive into the long term, we need to have air to breathe, food to eat, soils in which to uh, grow our sustenance. We need to learn to live on this one planet we know that we've evolved to survive on, and rather being like Elon Musk and having the great destiny for humankind is to, to colonize Mars. Ma Musk once said, 
you know, I'd like to die on Mars, but not on impact. Well, fine for his dream, but I don't believe we should be doing that until we've learned to live in this one world, like a mountaineer, um, you know, who's about to climb a risky peak. They make sure the base camp's in order first. Well, we haven't got our base camp in order, but that is one certainty we have, that we need to do that. And we know that those impacts of, you know, the climate crisis, ocean acidification, and so on, are hitting now. They're affecting communities now. So we know what to do about the future. Very interesting. Well, short-termism is part of the problem. Uh, what's your view on the, the drivers of short-termism? I, I know it's a big section uh, underlying, you know, the, the, your ideas in the book and, and, and the six uh, long-term uh, approaches that you, you, you discuss. And I was wondering... To what extent do you think that it's increased, that the, the short-termism has increased over the last 20 or 30 years, and, and maybe the degree to which that might be tied in with our economic system? Yeah, it's a really good question, because it's clear that we live in an age of the tyranny of the now, where politicians can't see beyond the next election, or businesses beyond the quarter report, we're constantly clicking the buy now button. I think it's important to recognize that the short-termism, which is so much part of cultural, political, economic life is not new. It's not just because we've got phones in our pockets. In fact, the roots of short-termism go back to the invention of the first mechanical clocks in Europe in the 14th century, really, when time started being sped up and measured. You know, the first clocks were chiming every hour. By 1700, the average clock had minute hands. By 1800, they started having second hands. That ticking clock was partly what powered the Industrial Revolution, speeding up the assembly line. And of course, now we're in the age of the nanosecond of speculative capitalism, which is getting us to, you know, there are share trades going on literally faster than the blink of an eye, faster than one four hundredth of a second. Um, so that kind of speculative capitalism, I think, is a really important part of what's driven us towards short termism, as well as our phones. But and of course, Speculative capitalism is rooted in the rise of neoliberalism. You know, neoliberalism, which has emerged you know, since the 1970s, really has no sense of the long term built into it. It's about, you know, deregulating markets right here, right now, pursuing profits right here, right now. So there's a myopia in the neoliberal um, model. But I do think and I agree that in the last 30 years, the short termist factors and drivers have been working harder and harder, speeding up time faster and faster, making the now shorter and shorter because of those algorithms driving the stock market, you know, partly because we are clicking that buy now button and constantly um, you know, checking up our phones and, and wanting to respond to the, the next text that comes our way. So the future is running towards us at pace and it's time we turn that around. And let's remember human beings do have an extraordinary capacity for long-term thinking. We just don't tap into it very much. That's how we built the Great Wall of China. That's how we voyaged into space. We can think beyond even our own lifetimes. I want to come to that now, finally, not finally, but it's a big part of the, the, the different approaches and uh, ideas. But just, I'm, I'm wondering about, uh, in, uh, particularly looking at it from a sustainability, from an environmental, particularly climate change perspective, it seems in the last couple of years that um, the public discourse has got more urgent. 
uh, and there is increasing voices that time is running out. We have tipping points. Uh, there's a lot of talk of 12 years left to save the future and ideas like that. Now, how do you balance urgency with long-term thinking? Yeah, it's a great question because I do believe it is incredibly urgent and we need this long-term thinking right here, right now. How exactly do we do that? Well, of course, you need political movements to raise these issues in the same way that in this time of COVID-19, UBI has been raised as a big issue or the same way that, you know, there's a lot of energy around transformation and the sense of urgency. So let's go back to that example I mentioned earlier of Kate Rayworth's um, donor economics model being adopted by the city of Amsterdam. What's important about that kind of model is that once a city sees a a city from another part of the world sees somewhere like Amsterdam or Copenhagen embarking on these ra more radical visions for post-growth economic development, well, then there's a kind of demonstration effect. And suddenly you get other cities wanting to do it as well. So that, you know, the donut model has been spreading around the world very rapidly in the last uh, six months. And I, so I think that there is a kind of a, a recognition there that we need to act urgently for the long term in the economic sphere. I think there's less sense of urgency around the political sphere. I believe the political institution changes are really fundamental. If you can't get your politicians to see beyond the next election or the latest tweet, it's going to be very hard to push them towards post-growth post -growth economic models, which are going to take us into a more sustainable long-term uh, space. That's why when I have been talking to politicians, I've talked about trying to change those discount rates. I've been bringing up examples like this future design movement in Japan. I also think we need to be campaigning for the rights for future generations. There are really important campaigns going on around the world in this area. So in the US, there's something called Our Children's Trust, which is a movement to um, fight for the rights for current and future generations to a clean and healthy atmosphere. And it's a group of young people who are taking the federal government and state governments to court for basically for subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Now, they're probably going to lose most of their battles, actually, but they're setting a precedent which is being followed in other countries to give rights to future people. Another important case in, is in the Netherlands, the Urgenda case, where they've effectively been uh, won the, the right, at least for current generations, to have their futures looked after by forcing the government to meet its carbon reduction targets. This is an extraordinary shift, but these are longer term battles. We're not going to win them in the next few months. Suddenly, you're not going to suddenly have by the end of 2020, 100 countries around the world having constitutionally embedded rights for future generations uh, in their legal systems. These struggles take years, sometimes decades. The first suffragette organization in the UK was founded in 1867. They didn't achieve their aims for at least 50 years of the late 1920s. Um, so this is the dilemma we face, that there may be 10 or 12 years, a small window, yet the struggles are going to have to, in reality, cross over beyond that period.
Yeah, so it's very interesting. I spoke to Francis Fox Piven recently, and we were talking about the Occupy movement, which you know many people said, well, it never really uh, delivered, you know, and it petered out, and there's various criticisms and so forth. And she made exactly this point that you know the, that these uh, in their own their individual steps that may not look like they've achieved an awful lot or achieved what they what the, the biggest greatest vision that they had, but they are stepping stones on this way, and that in America and civil rights and so forth was exactly like that. Uh, it, 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 people kept saying, well, this has been a failure, but after it's almost like the Beckett uh, fail, uh, try again, fail again, uh, fail better um, kind of idea. Uh, it's very interesting. So coming to the heart of, of the book, but what, what is, what, which you've spent a lot of time thinking about and, and, and many hundred pages uh, elucidating. So it's it, it, to get to the pith of what, 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 what's the best way to think about what long-term thinking looks like. <laughs> That's the big question. Well, you know, the book does have these six core chapters looking at six different kinds of long-term thinking. So there's deep time humility, a legacy mindset, intergenerational justice, cathedral thinking, holistic forecasting, a transcendent goal. And they're all really different ways of approaching the same problem of extending our time horizons. And different things, let's face it, work for different people. So the idea of deep time humility is recognizing that human existence is just an eye blink in cosmic time you know that going back for nearly four billion years of life on earth and who knows how many billion years life will go on maybe without humans into the future but it raises the question when you recognize that we are just an eye blink in cosmic time our 200,000 years on the planet well who are we in just in fact two centuries during since the industrial revolution to have wreaked such havoc with our ecological degradation and technological uh, threats and I think putting ourselves in that deep time perspective, it helps us raise that big question about who are we to break that great chain of life. But, you know, if I was going to sort of hone in on one of the issues, it would be the idea of legacy. I think this is a really powerful thing to think about. If you look back to the past, we are the inheritors of extraordinary legacies from previous generations, from those who planted the first seeds in Mesopotamia 10,000 years ago, who founded the cities we still live in, who made the medical discoveries like Jonas Salk that we still benefit from. But at the same time, we have also inherited negative legacies from our so-called bad ancestors, from those who bequeathed us those colonial and slavery era um, prejudices, which are still part of our uh, policing systems and judicial systems, from those who bequeathed us a fossil fuel economy and an addiction to carbon. And that raises a question then of, well, what is our legacy going to be to the generations to come? What gifts are we going to leave? And I like the idea of a, an intergenerational golden rule. So not the classic golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, but do unto future generations as you would have had past generations do unto you, to really think about what we've inherited, what we want to pass on. And let's recognize that we all want to leave legacies in various ways, particularly once we've reached midlife at some point. We think, how am I going to keep that fire of my own life uh, alive beyond death in some way? In a way, it all comes back to death. Now, a Russian oligarch might want to do it by getting a, a wing of a national gallery named after them. That's how they're going to survive death. Most of us focus on not an egotistical form of legacy, but a familial form of legacy. Right, I want to pass on uh, my home or wealth to my children or pass on... Um, family heirlooms or traditions, culture, religion. But I think if we're going to be good ancestors, we need to have a more transcendent sense of legacy and to think about 
leaving a legacy for the universal strangers of the future. And when you think about it, there's a relationship between them. Um, imagine a child that you know and care about. It could be a godchild or nephew or niece or one of your own kids or grandchildren. And if you picture them in your face, in your eyes, and then imagine them at their 90th birthday party, and again, try and picture their face, go and look out the window and see what the world is like out there. And then imagine someone puts a tiny baby into their arms, and that baby is their first great grandchild. And they look down into that child's eyes and they ask themselves, well, what kind of support will this baby need to survive and thrive into the years and decades ahead? And if you do that kind of thought experiment, you recognize that little baby could live well into the 22nd century. And if we care about leaving a legacy for that baby's life, which is only a couple of steps away from our own, we need to care about not just the baby, but we need to care about all life because we need to think about the community that would support that baby or the air that it will breathe and the food that we'll eat. So I think there's a, a jump to make from a familial to a transcendent form of legacy. And I think that's something that, can, that appeals to people, rich and poor, black and white, people from different backgrounds. We all can feel a connection to something that goes beyond our own life, but we need to work hard to do it and use our imaginations as well as those practical political experiments like that future design one in Japan where you imagine being in 2060. That's, that's very interesting. And you touched there at the end of this idea of the imagination. And I know you talk about this in the book and the importance of art and music and design. And um, I guess Mike Hume talks about this idea of the climate determinism or this idea that, um, well, it, it's, it certainly seems to be the case that it's very hard to think about the future. Uh, and it's certainly uh, pretty uh, populated. The future visions are pretty populated with with pretty uh, dark or dystopian climate scenarios. And it's been a, an issue in, in the way the environmental movement has, has framed discussions and the issues and so forth. But looking forward, this question of the future and uh, imagining future scenarios. Well, we, the, the, the climate models go, you know, all the way into the future with these extraordinary levels of detail. And yet there, there, there isn't a parallel process looking at how society might look and, and, and the social way in which society might be uh, engaged and connected. And can you talk a little bit about the role you see for the arts and the imagination in creating visions of the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm a great believer in the power of culture to shift the paradigms of society. Although I used to be a political scientist and I believe in changing those political institutions and I'm married to an ecological economist and I believe in structural economic change, I've also founded a, a museum, an empathy museum. So I, 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 it, And the reason I did that, because I believe you need to create new conversations in society about the stuff that matters. For me, we need to be talking about what it means to be a good ancestor, whether you're talking about a business or a government or a community or, or a family. And the arts have a big role to play there. Science fiction is really important. Of course, you've got your Hollywood blockbusters, which just love all the dystopian kind of scenarios where the earth freezes or geoengineering goes wrong and stuff. And those can be very voyeuristic. I like, I guess, more complex forms of science fiction. So I'm addicted, I have to admit, to the novels of the US sci-fi writer Kim Stanley Robinson, who is a genius, I think, and a true visionary. I think anyone who cares about sustainability should be reading a book of his called Aurora, which is about a, a spaceship that goes uh, out for a couple of centuries, in fact, to populate another world. And the people on the spaceship have all these different biomes 
uh, on this spaceship. There's a couple of thousand of people and there's 12 different biomes, I think. Um, so there's a savanna area and there's more tropical areas. And they're trying to live within the limits of this one spaceship. And it's a perfect metaphor for how do we live on this spaceship Earth we're on within the planetary boundaries, within the limits of the biocapacity which the Earth has offered us. It's brilliant for that. The other novel of his, which I think is superb, is called New York 2140. And it's about um, set in the mid-22nd century. New York, because of sea level rises, climate change is now under 50 feet of water. And what I love about that book is it's messy. It's not utopian or dystopian. You've got capitalists speculating on property, on the intertidal zones, where the water's lapping up and coming back, trying to make big bucks. You've got anarchists and socialists trying to set up mutual aid cooperatives in New York skyscrapers and do communal food organization. And it is a hell of a mess and it's complicated. And I think that is kind of how it's going to be probably in reality. So I, I get a lot out of that, but I also like visionary art projects, which really open our minds to a different kind of future. So one I love is from the Scottish artist, Katie Patterson, and it's called Future Library. And it's a 100-year art project that started in 2014. Every year for 100 years, a famous writer is depositing a book in the future library, which will remain completely secret and unread until the year 2114, at which point the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a 1,000 trees that have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. And the first person to deposit a book was Margaret Atwood. Others like Elif Shafak, Turkish writer, has deposited a book there too. And think about it, Margaret Atwood is never going to meet any of the readers. She's never going to see the book published in her lifetime, but she has left a legacy gift to the future. And I think it raises a question for us, which is, well, what legacy gifts are we ourselves going to leave for the generations to come, for the unborn citizens of tomorrow? And I think art is a wonderful way of opening our minds in that direction. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, in terms of your book is full of uh, very inspiring examples of, of uh, long-term thinking projects and so forth. I'm wondering, are there a couple that you think are interesting where the, the people involved have consciously moved towards moving from a short-term perspective to a longer-term perspective? And uh, what that entails, I guess, because what's great in your book is 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 this mixture of, of ideas and and uh, projects and uh, things that are unfolding around the world. But I guess this is a really important question for for uh, a lot of uh, thinking in 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 our time is how to turn this into action. You, you you mentioned you know the rigidity, institutional rigidity in politics and so forth. But uh, are there a couple of projects like that where where you you, you we can watch them unfold? That's a really interesting question. I've never quite thought about it like that. I mean, of course, I look to inspiring individual projects with long-term vision, like the Svalbard Seed Vault in the Arctic Circle, which is collecting seeds to maintain the world's plant biodiversity. They've got over a million seeds from 6,000 species, and they put them in an indestructible rock bunker that's designed to last for a 1,000 years. So you've got those kind of examples. But in a way, I also like these sort of incremental examples around what i love seeing is different for example companies which are trying to be completely circular as much as they can so for example there's the swedish um, company houdini that makes um, hiking gear and skiing gear and they try and have totally circular processes so you can buy one of their hiking jackets uh, which is made from totally recyclable 
uh, you know, organic cotton, stuff like that, uh, organic walls. And when you finished with it, when it doesn't fit you anymore, you can put it in one of their compost dumps and it turns into soil. And then you can have make a meal, eat a meal, eat vegetables made from your old, old hiking jacket or skiing jacket. And it's part of this sort of circular economy movement. And what I think is really fascinating here and truly inspiring is to recognize there's lots of these kinds of things going on all over the world, but it's going on in fab labs in Africa and renewable energy projects in Canada and so on. And when you put them all together, I think we can see a genuinely emerging time rebel movement, particularly in the economic sphere. Something I find really fascinating is that back in the 18th century, Adam Smith, you know, the, the great political economist, you know, Adam Smith didn't even realize there was an industrial revolution going on right before his eyes. Of course, we see it now in retrospect when we look back. And I think there is a regenerative economy potentially moving, but it is only in fragments. It's contingent. It's here and there in different places around the world. We may look back at something emerging. It may not succeed. It is fighting against the big fossil fuel companies, of course, and the big tech companies as well. Um, but I believe that those kinds of examples are really important or look at the rewilding movement, which is starting to spread from Europe into other countries as well. These all give hope that I think there is this wave, the shift towards longer time horizons. That's why Greta Thunberg's talked about becoming a cathedral thinker, which is one of the concepts I explore in my book about being like medieval cathedral builders, embarking on projects um, which have time horizons going beyond your own life. I think more and more of that stuff is happening. And the good news is that it brings us existential sustenance. You know, if we want to really think for the long term, it's not just about time, it's about place. It is, to go back to what I was saying earlier, about looking after the place that will take care of our offspring. That means looking after the living world. That means falling in love with a river or a mountain or a meadow and becoming its custodian. I think we become time rebels, really, by falling in love with place and by honoring this beautiful mohawk blessing, which I came across, which is said when a child is born. It goes like this. Thank you, Earth. You know the way. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. And, and, and time rebels, I, I, I like it. There's an idea you talk about in the book, which I, I came across uh, before, but uh, maybe if you could just talk about it a little bit. It's a seventh generation thinking. What, what is this? And, and, and what, how does that change how you would uh, look at a, a problem as a, for, rather than first generation thinking, as it were? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Now, seventh generation thinking is an idea which comes out of Native American cultures, particularly Iroquois people and Lakota Nation people, they use this idea of making community decisions based on the impact seven generations from today. So let's say 150, 200 years uh, ahead. And this has been part of community decision making in those cultures for at least a couple of hundred years. It's all very well recorded. And it is being used today, not only in those communities, but the idea of seventh generation thinking is spreading around the world. So that future design methodology of local government decision-making in Japan that I mentioned, that is directly inspired by the Iroquois seventh generation idea or the Our Children's Trust movement that I mentioned fighting for legal rights for future generations is also directly inspired by the seventh generation idea. Um, then there's a the question of, well, how do you bring it into other fields? Of course, 
if I talk to members of parliament in the UK, I don't say, right, well, you must follow this Native American idea of seventh generation thinking, but I'm trying to bring its ideas into, let's talk about discounting and about the injustices of discounting the welfare of future generations. Um, and I think you can draw on it in your own way. Or, the, of course, the great um, economist, Nobel Prize winning economist, Eleanor Ostrom, said, if we're thinking about um, sustainably managing our resources, we need to draw on the Native American idea of seventh generation thinking. So I think we can just try and make it work for whichever field we happen to be in as a kind of point of inspiration. But ultimately, I think what matters is thinking about the impacts of our actions beyond our own lifetimes and to recognize that we are in an interdependent relationship with future generations, like that baby being held in uh, someone's arms that may well still be alive in the 22nd century. You know, there's a there's another idea, not seventh generation thinking, but in Maori culture, there's this concept called Baka Papa, spelled with the WH, which they pronounce with an F, an F. And it's the idea, it's their word for lineage or genealogy. And it's the idea that we're all in a great chain of life, stretching long into the past uh, and far into the future. And it so happens that the light is shining right here, right now in the present moment. And what we need to do is widen it, widen it so we can see all those generations across the landscape of time and to recognize that uh, when we're, you know, in our daily lives, you are in the present, but also in the room with you are the dead and the unborn. Everyone is here together. And I think that mind shift is the one we need for becoming good ancestors. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's so many ideas. I just wanted to see what I could sneak in one more. The Jonas South S curve. Um, can you, I, 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 I thought that was fascinating. Can you just briefly <laughs> say what, what is the S curve and, and, and how does it help us in taking a longer term perspective? So the S curve or the Zygmoid curve, I think is one of the fundamental shapes uh, and, and insights to have emerged in the social sciences in the last half century. People like Steven Pinker come along in books like Enlightenment Now and say, you know, we can just keep progressing and growing forever. What's happened in the past is going to keep on going. We can keep growing our economies, growing out, developing our technologies, and we'll be fine. But what Jonas Salk and many other thinkers have pointed out, going back to the Limits to Growth report in the early 1970s, is that nothing in nature, nothing grows forever, whether in human systems or natural systems. No oak forest grows forever. It grows and then it, it reaches a point of maturity, levels off and eventually dies out. Your children's feet don't grow forever. The idea of the S-curve is to recognize that there's a slope of development going upwards, then an inflection point is reached, and then it levels off and then sometimes then declines. And that is a fundamental idea for thinking about our own civilization. It cannot keep growing forever in the way it's currently been growing since the Industrial Revolution. Our planet can't hold that kind of um, waste that's created or um, use of, of resources because we are pushing the Earth into an unstable Earth system. That's what planetary boundary scientists like Johan Rockström and, and Will Stefan have been telling us. We can't go on like this. We need to recognize the S-curve and recognize, too, that no civilization lasts forever uh, either. There's a great study by a Cambridge University researcher called Luke Kemp where he looked at 90 different civilizations, ancient civilizations, and worked out the average age for a civilization was 336 years. You know, no matter how technologically developed, no matter how politically or militarily powerful, all civilizations are born, they grow, they flower, and they die. And if we want to avoid that fate, we need to jump onto a different kind of curve. Uh, 
you know, a, a curve of deep transformation of our societies that's fundamentally challenging the representative democratic political system, which is so caught up in the short term here and now of electoral cycles. We need citizens' assemblies, future design, rights for future people. We need to shift off our growth-addicted economies to regenerative economies and to not the, the take-make-use-lose form of, in, of, of product manufacturing that we have, but we need to be using uh, items again and again and again, whether it's coffee grounds, turning them into soil in which to grow mushrooms and then turn that into animal feed, or using, um, you know, products we make like like plastics or steels over and over and over again as much as possible so we need to get ourselves off that upward sloping growth s curve onto something that's more sustainable and more mature absolutely and a, a, a lot going on there as you say it's quite interesting that that's what 350 360 years uh, seven generations would get you from one uh, civilization to another if you're thinking about seven generations that's a great i'd never thought of that that's a great thought <laughs> yeah so what's next for you roman well i think as an you know i'm an author i'm a writer and you know when a new book comes out what happens is you've got no idea what kind of response it's going to have. And my plan now is to follow where the energy is in response to this new book. And it's really, it's only been out for a few weeks. So, but what I'm really noticing is how many governments are interested in this idea of long-term thinking, trying to take advantage of this COVID moment and think long, whether it's UK MPs I'm speaking to, or um, yeah, just been invited to go and talk to the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs. Um, and lots of examples like that. You've got this birth of these guardians of the future emerging around the world. You've got Wales's Future Generations Commissioner. You've got Gibraltar now has a Future Generations Commissioner. There is a campaign at the moment for the Netherlands to have something uh, similar. So I'm going to be advocating for all these kinds of ideas, really, which I think are fundamental for kick-starting again the conversation around the climate crisis, which of course has been somewhat lost due to the pandemic. And a lot of my focus over the coming months and years is going to be on trying to bring these ideas of long-termism directly into debates about dealing with um, the ecological crisis and trying to show how we need particularly to reinvent not just our economic institutions, but our cultural life and our political institutions as well. Well, that's a great vision. And I wish you the very best success with all of that, Roman. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your ideas, your research, your inspiration on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, so thank, thanks so much for having me on the program, uh, Fergal. It's been really, really fascinating. I've had lots of new thoughts thanks to your questions. <laughs> If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Jason Hickel's powerful new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, which shows how we need to transform the dogmas of capitalism to forge a new system that is fit for the 21st century, available online and at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.